One of the highlights of young adulthood can be courtship in marriage. The majority of Americans hold marriage in, in high regard, and those who are single aspire to marriage. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that 93% of all Americans hope to enter into lasting and happy union with one person. Over the last three decades, the majority of high school students have consistently affirmed that having good marriage and family life is, quote, extremely important. It's a popular topic with uh, dating seminars and courtships. Uh, it's a growth area, even in this time of economic downturn, it's still a growth area, dating services and internet dating. Yet, marriage rates continue to decrease and divorce rates continue to climb. Unmarried births and cohabitation are high. 40% of the births in North America, in, in the United States, are now out of wedlock, 40%. In uh, the Journal of Psychological Medicine, researchers at the Institute of Psychiatry at London's King's College found that schizophrenia was 2.5 time, times higher in those whose parents divorced before the age of 16. Divorce also brings poverty. There is nothing new or secret about happy marriages and how to have one. The oldest book contains the only time-tested, reliable instruction. Christian young people often claim certain promises during the Bible, uh, uh, during this time. One of the promises, delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart, is often quoted, but they're less apt to follow the instructions just a few verses later. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. The Bible not only has promises to claim, but instruction to follow. And that's what we have been looking at this weekend. Throughout the Bible, there is a theme on courtship and marriage. The Bible opens with a marriage scene in Genesis 2. That's the second chapter. And then the closes with a marriage in the next to the last chapter. This balanced sandwich there. Christ's first miracle was a wedding miracle. The joyful courtship of Isaac and Rebekah encourages us with the happiness that marriage can bring. The deceptions practiced on Jacob warn us of the deceptions that can be perpetrated during this vulnerable period. You can, people can try to deceive you and trick you into marrying the wrong person. It can also teach us that the person you thought you married is not the person that the next day after marriage you discover. In the pages of the Bible, we learn the challenges Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, faced during his courtship with marriage. The creative courtship of the Benjamites who seized the dancing girls of Shiloh for their wives. There are cautions with the disastrous alliances of Solomon and his wives, Ahab and Jezebel, and the marriage of Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram to Jezebel's daughter Athaliah, the sorrows of, of, of Hosea's experience. As we mentioned, the Ten Commandments, all of them at least implicitly speak of the home 
five of them are very explicit about marriage and family issues. God wants to give us the joy but spare us the sorrow of dating and marriage. Now, how can we have a courtship that doesn't end, a romance that doesn't end with marriage? How can we have a life's partner who will be a lifelong blessing? How can we have God's best for our life? It's a great responsibility to discuss this topic with you, to take you on a journey to and through God's Word. And so let's bow our heads as we look at this final topic. Lord, we want to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I pray that you will bless us during this time together. I pray that we may have your wisdom and guidance May we have the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be careful who you love, because love is expensive. In 2005, CNN reported that the average cost of a wedding was nearly $30,000. That's more than three semesters of private college, nearly a year's tuition for medical school before making that kind of investment, you ought to know how marriage is going to turn out because hatred can be even more expensive. In 2004, excuse me, in 2004, John Crouch, divorce reform authority and attorney, estimated that a contested divorce with child custody can cost $40,000 or even more. Before marrying, you need to know if the one you're going to marry is worth that kind of an investment. Now, some people look at courtship like they do a chemistry reaction. Molecules bounce, uh, randomly bouncing around by statistical probability joined together, and if not this one, then that one will do. As the song crooned, if the one you love ain't with you, love the one you're with. But this secular, cynical worldview is not the biblical Christian view. The world can never know the thoughts of the Lord. They will never understand his plans. In the Word of God, there's found a better way, a plan formulated in the mind of God that will best meet your needs and prepare us for increased usefulness both here and hereafter. God has a plan that makes two people the right people, not just as effective as they would be single, but more effective than they would be single. If the two of you are not more productive and effective together than you are apart, there's no reason to be married. To understand God's plan in courtship, we really need to understand God's major purpose, one of his major purposes in marriage. As you know, courtship in marriage is an activity that sets humans apart from angels. Jesus said in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Angels don't marry. They have never courted. They have never dated. After our resurrection in our new glorious bodies, we will not have courtship. We won't marry or be given in marriage. 
there's something better in heaven. Do you suppose that the angels say, oh, I wish I could be human so I could court and date? Oh, that looks like it's really exciting. You get married? Wow. Oh, I'm so sorry I'm an angel. Do you think so? Or do you think they sort of pity us and, and, and say, they don't understand it yet, but wait till they get to heaven. Wait till they get to heaven. Those young people who say, oh, I hope that Jesus doesn't come before I get married, they don't have a clue what they're missing out of. They just don't have a clue. But for this earth, God's plans for most is marriage. Why? Why? There must be some important reasons for marriage. To understand God's process for courtship, we must understand God's purpose for marriage and Satan's strategy to defeat God's plan for marriage. Notice the context of that familiar verse of Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. That came right after God instructed Adam. Adam was by himself. And God said to Adam, now he took him around. He was giving him an introduction. He said, uh, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. God commanded who? The man. So Adam was alone. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, if Adam had been by himself, he would not have been able to resist the temptation to try the forbidden fruit. And so immediately after telling him this, God looked at Adam, saw his weakness, and said what? Wouldn't be good for Adam to face that kind of temptation. Over the years, he would fall. I'm going to make somebody that will help him, a helper comparable to him, help him resist this temptation. One of the great purposes of marriage is to help strengthen us to resist temptation. Notice Ecclesiastes 4.12. The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, it was God's design in marriage, like combining two weaker ingredients to make a strong epoxy, glue, that husband and wife together would be stronger to resist temptation. Sociology reveals that man is weaker alone. Patsy Ray Dawson in her book on marriage claims that single men commit 90% of all crimes of violence, earn less than their married peers, are five times more likely to be hospitalized for emotional distress, have the highest suicide rate, are four times more likely to be killed in a car crash, and generally from all causes die younger and are six times more likely than married men to die of accidental falls. It is Satan's plan to frustrate this purpose in marriage. He plots to make married people weaker for their marriage, less able to resist temptation that comes through their spouse. He was successful with Eve. And then Adam and Eve cast the blame on God. God's plan was for, the, for Eve and Adam to be stronger so that they would resist temptation. And so he said that they should be together. But neither Eve nor Adam apart could resist that temptation. 
There is a second great purpose in marriage that we should notice. Malachi 2.15, but did he not make them one and why one? He seeks godly offspring. God's purpose in marriage is for parents to be strengthened to resist evil and to have godly offspring, godly seed. His purpose is to have families where piety reigns. This is his plan. Now, this is important not to think that this uh, involves purely biological offspring. Don't miss the point. In referring, it's referring to home, husbands and wives, as a center for evangelistic growth. Soul winning, whether we have children or not. One may not have physical children, but you can have spiritual children. That's what Paul, who was single, called his children in the Lord. He said, Timothy, I'm, I'm your father in the Lord. And we can help win other children and adults to Christ. God intends for a husband and wife to have the joy of at least one soul for their marriage. One soul in heaven. And some will have many. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Sing, O childless woman. Break forth into loud and joyful song, O Jerusalem, even though you never gave birth to a child, for the woman who could, not bear, who could bear no children now has more than all the other women, says the Lord. Notice how the Amplified Version translates this verse. Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who did not travail with child. For the, and the Amplified puts in parenthesis the spiritual children of the desolate one will be more than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. Let me repeat this point. Our marriages are to produce godly seed. This can be evangelistic and, of course, biological. Strength to meet temptation and evangelism are two great purposes of marriage. Now, those aren't the only purposes of marriage, but those are two great ones that the Bible um, gives. It's not an exhaustive list. During courtship, these two purposes of marriage must be clearly kept in mind. Will this person help me resist temptation, and can we have godly seed evangelistically or biologically? A single man and a single woman can never have a child alone, no matter how gifted and talented they are. And God designed a marriage to do what, for, with two people what either of them, as we have said, apart could not do for themselves. No man liveth unto himself. There are some things that require two. God designed it this way. Just as we cannot produce offspring alone, God designed other things that cannot be done alone. If we follow God's plan for courtship, we will not date or marry anyone who will not help us be stronger to resist temptation and raise godly offspring, godly homes. Adventist Home, page 102. Marriage does not lessen their usefulness but strengthens it. They may make their married life a ministry to win souls for Christ. Now, God's plan won't happen for just merely random units. We're not simply molecules bouncing off whoever and whatever 
is nearest us. You can know absolutely where, whether God is guiding in your courtship and in your dating relationship, God makes it simple. Does the one you are dating strengthen your relationship, you strengthen you to resist temptation? Are you more careful with your health, your sleep, your diet, your exercise because of your association? Do you feel a tug toward the world or away from the world when you're together? Are you involved in soul winning activities and outreach? Are you both seeking better ways to present the beauties of Jesus to those around you? If this is not happening during your courtship, what's going to change when you're married? How can I know this is true? Because the Bible gives reliable ways, four reliable ways to predict the future. I want to give you four principles that are very important in predicting the future of a relationship. These four principles will help you evaluate what your relationship will look like in 10 or 20 years. Galatians 6-7 tells us the first principle, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. God has made it possible to peer into our future. We only need to recognize what seed we're sowing to know what crop is going to be harvested in the future. If we've studied the life history of the seed, we can know how many steps will occur before we finally have the crop. Farmers can predict with certainty if they plant corn, they'll have a crop of not apples, corn. And a, far, a farmer can decide what to harvest, and when he decides that, then he knows what? The seeds he has to plant. It's never guesswork. It's a reliable predictor. Now, actions are the seeds we sow. Habits are the harvest we reap. This has various corollaries. Number two, we tend to re-sow the seed we harvest. You sow it, you reap it, you then re-sow it. Our past is the, the Ecclesiastes 1.9, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. Our best predictor is the past. If you want to know how somebody is going to do in college, what's the best predictor? Check how they did in high school. There are exceptions but they're exceptions. What do they check before they accept you in medical school? They see how you did on tests. They see how you did in college. Why? Because the past is a predictor of the future. When I hire somebody, if I'm going to interview them, what do I check? How were they as a worker in the jobs before? If they were lousy workers before, what are they apt to be working for me? Is, am I going to transform them somehow? Not going to probably happen. The past is the best predictor of the future. The person who is diligent today is apt to be diligent tomorrow. It's this print, biblical principle, these four principles, these are the first two, that form the basis of decisions in courtship and marriage. 
Without this, you have no guidance whatsoever. You're just guessing. You're hoping for the best. Do you want to peer into your future? Peer into the past. Do you want to examine the future of a possible life together? Examine the past of the person you're dating. Carefully investigate their habits. Do you want to peer into the person's past? Look at their habits today, and you can absolutely know what their actions of the past have been. You can know it. It glimpse, gives us a glimpse into the very likely future. Now, it's not hard to modify behavior for a few days. You go on a date, can a person modify their behavior for you for an hour? Sure. They can be nice and courteous for an hour. But it's not that one hour that you want to see. You want to see how they are in time. Changing habits is, uh, is uh, not easy. I used to help my dad do five-day plans, stop smoking plans. And, uh, and then uh, more recently, we've worked with the CHIP program where you change habits of eating. And for a week or for a month, people can change. But the question is, is that change going to last for a year? And that's what you want to, to know. Um, I remember how that when I first went to, to Kansas, through no fault of my own, but the weird laws there, I got nine tickets. Now, you know that wasn't a habit of mine. It just was coincidence. And then, um, after, after getting these tickets, my insurance company used my tip tickets as a way to peer into my future. And they didn't like what they saw. And so they raised my rates for insurance, and I saw I got to do something about this. And so you know what I did? After the last ticket, um, before each ticket, I would change for a few minutes. But after the last ticket and the raise of my insurance, I made desperate efforts to uh, live within the law. <laughs> and over time, um, that worked. And because I had a two, I went to see a lawyer. How do I get my my past cleared. And so he says, uh, he could help me in Kansas. You could get your past cleared, but it would take me two years without one violation. So for two years, not a violation occurred. I was so grateful. And on the third year, all that record was expunged, and suddenly I could get insurance again. But over time, guess what happened? I begin to slip back into old habits. Does that sound familiar? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Um, if you're going to loan money to somebody, would you preferentially loan money to somebody who is has been bankrupt in the past? It's a risk, isn't it? Why? 
because the past is a, is a predictor of the future. Now I'm going to say something that may sound very harsh, and I don't mean it to be harsh. I wanted to say it as kindly and gently as possible, but I have to say it. I have to tell you a story about a uh, girl who was a friend of mine. She was a minister's daughter while I was in medical school. She and her sister were actually fairly close friends of, uh, of mine, not dating friends, but close friends. And she fell in love with a person who had had a life of sexual perversion in the past. And because she was hopeful that he had changed, and because her father was a minister, he was willing to marry them. And he, she did something that she should never have done, and her father should never have done. She married this person with this history of perversion. And guess what? Over time, he went back into his homosexual lifestyle. And now, divorced, she blames God. She is not a Christian. She's ruined. All has ruined. She should never have married this fella. The past was a predictor of the future. And folk, as hard and as harsh as it may sound, it's, it's not. Um, there are things that we can do. Uh, I took care of for years. I was in rehab before I took dermatology. And people could make a mistake break their necks, and for the rest of their lives, as sorry as they were for what they had done, they bore the consequences of a broken neck, paralyzed from the neck down. It can happen. And there are certain lifestyles, certain habits of life, that if you want to be happy, don't, don't, don't consider marrying a person who has been involved in certain kinds of, uh, of choices and habits and addictions, not if you want to be happy. See, we can know our future by our past and our present choices, and that forms the basis of all true counseling and courtship counseling. Life's experiences should teach us the truth of the following solemn quotation. Repeated acts in a given course become, what's the next word? Habits. Habits are very hard to change. Habits are what give us bondage to sin. They may be, these may be modified by severe training in afterlife, but what's the word? Are what? Seldom changed. Can, um, over time, these habits become more and more difficult to, to break. We tend to re-sow them. Once formed, these habits, uh, once formed, habits become, what does it say? More and more firmly impressed upon the character. Can people change? Oh, yes. Do some people change? Yes. Do many people change? No. They seldom do. It requires full surrender of Christ, persevering effort. We should be under no illusions 
about the odds of the one we are dating making fundamental changes in their habits. Never risk your future in the misguided hope that they will change after you marry. Because established habits of youth are seldom changed, we can make reliable predictions about the future. Notice the next quotation on the screen. The habits formed in childhood and youth, the taste acquired, the self-control gained or not gained, are almost certain to determine the future of the man or woman. Almost certain. So do you want to predict the future of a man or woman? You need to be observant of three things. The habits. What are the habits? The tastes and the self-control. In nearly every case, the habits established in early years decide whether a man or a woman will be victorious or vanquished in the battle of life. That's a very solemn quotation. And these introduce us to another corollary which includes that which determines our taste and our culture, early childhood influences. Seed sowing principle, first way to predict the future. Seed re-sowing principle, way to predict the future. The first sowing principle, what are the first influences? Why is it that Chinese like Chinese food? Why is it that Italians like Italian food? And Mexicans like Mexican food. Is it genetic? It's what they were first exposed to. And when they're old, what do they still like, even if they're exposed to the better American diet of potatoes? <laughs> yeah. It's what our earliest exposure. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, what? He won't depart from it, Proverbs 22, 6. Again, we note these childhood influences, while strong, can be overcome by the grace of God, but they must be overcome before you consider dating or marrying, and you give time to make certain that there are new habits, the old habits are gone. These are principles that predict the future. And God has given us these in his word to keep us from making mistakes, great mistakes in business associates and great mistakes in marriage partners. He gives us these for our instruction in child training. He gave them so we can determine our future. The three habits, the three things, habit, taste, self-control. These things can determine what it's going to be like in the future. The seed sowing and harvest principle, the seed re-sowing principle, the first sowing principle. And there is one final predictor of the future. The early fruit principle or the foreshadowing principle. That is, not all fruit is harvested at the same time. God has made it so that there's always some precocious fruit so that you can see what the harvest is going to be like. It's the foreshadowing 
principle. And while you're dating somebody, God will give you glimpses of some of the fruit if you watch for it. And we don't have time to give illustrations of that. You want to know what the future holds, and it inadvertently will slip out if you listen and watch what another person is, is doing. Understand, understood and correctly applied, this can give us tremendous help, bring us happiness, saving us from disappointment. Ignored, and you can have sorrow and disappointment. Now we want to look a little closer at the power of the seeds and sowing. Jesus told two parables about seed and harvest. One parable tells of good seed that was planted by a wise farmer. The other tells us of bad seed that was planted by an enemy. Each kind of seed produced a particular harvest after its kind. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that the good seed came from God's word. In the parable of the tares, Jesus said that the seeds came from the evil one, his deceptive words, his ideas, his plans. Words, you see, are seeds, and the harvest are thoughts, actions, and habits. We plant the seed every time we open our mouth. Words we say to others are seeds that we uh, sow broadcast. What I'm telling you right now are seeds that are being planted seeds that are being planted. And when we speak, we are the sowers. The words we speak determine the harvest we will reap. When God made the world, how did he do it? He spake. His harvest was the world. His seed was his word. Um, everything God created has voice recognition. It responds to the voice of God. When God speaks, things happen. Because of the power of his word, God is very, very careful in what he says. I was on a committee with Pastor Mark Finley, and, and I asked a question, and Mark said something very, very interesting. He started to answer, and then he said this. He says, I have learned that I will be quoted. He just stopped. I'll never forget it. And he didn't, re didn't complete what he was about to say. He says, I have learned that I, am, I will be quoted, so let me say it this way. God knows he will be quoted, so he says it in a very careful way. He speaks the truth. And God made, it, made us in his image. When we speak... Things happen. Um, G James compares the tongue to a wild, untamable animal, a small rudder on a ship that controls the direction of the whole ship. The tongue is small, but do you know what the largest area uh, uh, of the brain is? The area to the tongue is the biggest area of muscle control. Um, James says that it starts fires. Any one of us can be pyromaniacs. 
and we think of all the damage. So why did somebody light a fire? Folk, we are pyromaniacs. We light fires by what we say. No wonder that James says, be slow to speak. You reveal a good deal about yourself every time you open your mouth. If you want a happy marriage, in a courtship, you'll be a wise observer of seeds so you can know what the future will be. With time and practice, you can learn to look deeply into the heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The mouth is the stethoscope to the heart. And through the mouth, that stethoscope, you can determine heart trouble, murmurs, and those sorts of things. This is helpful, not just in courtship. Um, I gain insight into my, my wife's mind as I listen to what she says. She doesn't speak a lot. She's quiet. But what she says is well worth listening to. Um, I listened to my wife as she was packing and uh, what she told me to remember to bring, and I still forgot one of the things. Yeah, I told, yes, I told her, yeah, put that in. And then I had put it in, but I had taken it out. Um, I learned those things. You see, when we speak, things happen. Very good things happen or very bad things happen. Solomon spoke of the evil man who, moving his lips, bringeth evil to pass. We are planting a crop in courtship and early marriage that will bring a harvest in kind. Ellen White says that the, what you say in your first year of marriage <laughs> will live on for a crop after in your, uh, in your married life. No wonder that Peter said, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. When Isaiah's tongue was sanctified by the coals from the altar, he became a power for good. What was it when God wanted to change the world? What did he send the Holy Spirit to do? Control the tongues. When the tongues of Christians were speaking right, guess what happened? The gospel was carried to the entire world. Believe me, the seeds we plant in courtship and early marriage are perennials. They have long-term predictable consequences. Revengeful words are like implanting a poison dispenser in another person's mind. Um, the wo those words are never forgotten. You'll forget them, but the other person, they live on, still poisoning the relationship. But words not only react on others, they react even more on ourselves. I was listening to my iPod, and I, I was very impressed when I was listening to Exodus 14. The children of Israel were there caught between, they just uh, left the Egypt, and they were caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptians behind them. And instead of having faith in God, what did they say? They said, why have you dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? A year before, they had said to Moses, all right, 
this is making it worse for us. Just leave us alone. We'll serve the Egyptians. Now, a year later, what was the harvest of their lack of faith of what they said a year before? They were still working on the words that a year before they had said. Amazing. When I saw this a few weeks ago, how that what I say a year ago will still work on me today, I prayed, Lord, cleanse me from my own words where I have spoken lack of faith, kill the seed, uproot the weed. But you see, we not only speak to others, but you know who we talk to? We talk to ourselves. Someone once said there are two reasons that you talk to yourself. Sometimes you just want to talk to an intelligent person. Other times you just want to listen to one. Um, how do we plant seeds? By our words. Words we say to others, words we think, words we say to ourselves, words we think about. What is it that you think about in your spare time? Others. Um, David said... Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. You know, people have no idea what we're thinking at any time. You may not say it, but what you're thinking are words that are reacting on you, planting seeds. Words we write are also seeds we plant and will reap. Words we write in email, on blogs, in essays. While we are planting seeds in others' hearts and in our own hearts by what we say, others are planting seeds in our hearts. Words we hear. How important. The teachers we choose, the classes we choose. One of the reasons why some of these schools uh, here at Weimar, uh, Washita Hills, others are good schools are because the teachers are careful with what they're teaching. And you want to choose places to learn where uh, you'll be getting seeds that will reap a good harvest. Do you want to have doubts and unbelief? Have, place yourselves under teachers. Listen to and read books by people who are giving words of doubt and unbelief. Um, have professors, friends, and journals provide seeds and fertilize for a crop of doubt and unbelief. Of course, you'll never have happiness, not, with, not without faith. Weeds of doubt will crowd them out. You won't have the joy of soul winning. You'll be too busy assisting people to destruction. I, uh, when I learned this, I began to to seek to listen to the Word of God. When, um, when an iPod came out, the first thing I tried to do, because I was trying to listen to the Bible when I was running, so I got a CD that was supposed to be for jogging, but it kept skipping, it didn't work. And finally, I bought an iPod, uh, but I, I tested it out to see, I, I looked at blogs, did, it, uh, did the jogging, uh, jarring of jogging, keep it skipping. And in the second or third generation, it began, to, it began to work while people were jogging. And so I bought 
an iPod to, uh, to listen to and um, found that I could run, the first generation I could run for 20 minutes without it uh, skipping. Then it would, it would skip. So I'd stop for a minute and it would fill its memory and I could run again. So I could run two 40-minute sections or however many number of 20-minute uh, uh, sections, just stop for briefly. And, and uh, I found that listening to the Bible, I put five versions of the Bible. Now I have uh, 50 books of the Spirit of Prophecy on it, 50 books. You can get some of the books now on Ellen White Audio, free downloads. Um, and there are other ways to get it. Remnant Publishing has uh, Spirit of Prophecy. But listening to the Word of God changes you completely. Um, when I'm in the car, I, uh, I, I have the Word of God uh, going. And at night, when I'm falling to sleep, I found some earbuds that are soft, and I can listen to the Word of God. And hear instruction. It changes your life. Um, it's seed that reaps a wonderful harvest. The words we read, how important the books we choose to read, the textbooks, the recreational reading, the magazines, the newspapers. When you're dating, keep your eyes open. Observe the seeds that are being planted. What are the person's favorite classes? What are their friends? The words we choose to live by, these, in fact, are the most important words because these determine our future, the words you live by. It's not some strange, mysterious secret what you're going to be like in 20 years or where the person, what the person you're dating is going to be like in 20 years. It's not strange at all. You'll be exactly what seeds you planted, what thoughts you thought, what deeds you did, what words you said, that will be what you are like in 20 years. The Judas um, is a clear uh, reminder of this. The disciples were surprised by how Jesus turned, Judas turned out. They shouldn't have been. They would have been listening to the doubts that he kept throwing out. They would have known what was going on. Jesus wasn't surprised. He saw the seeds. He read the harvest. I was always amazed with my dad. Uh, he was a very astute, as I mentioned before, very astute observer of people. And there was one friend of mine who was actually an associate pastor. And my, da my dad warned me about him. And I didn't really believe it. But sure enough, this fellow ultimately left the church, um, now is a was for a time a Presbyterian pastor, went over as a Sunday um, uh, missionary. Amazing to me. But my dad had learned to recognize seeds so he could determine he knew harvest. The astute physician can see the earliest stages of cancer, the symptoms and signs, when other people would miss it. And so he knows what the future can be without immediate intervention, careful treatment. Evil, disobedience to God's law in all of its myriad forms produce a harvest of more sin, like sin, unhappiness, finally death. But the good news is those predictors can help us. Knowing what seed we have planted, we can start weeding now. 
digging up the roots, burning the roots. There was a patient of mine that came in with um, a uh, cancer that was too late to do anything about. She had been diagnosed with cancer earlier, but uh, she had prayed about it and believed that God had taken the cancer away. And so she was very happy about that. And the doctor she had gone to did some superficial studies and said, yeah, you're, you're cured. She wasn't cured. The cancer kept growing. And finally, it had spread everywhere. And then she could no longer ignore the fact that it was out control everywhere in her body. There are many, many people, dear folk, who pray a little bit about their sin and think it's solved. They have not gotten the roots out. And Lord, I want my roots pulled out. I don't want any taint of sin to keep reproducing and, and growing. I don't want to be deceived into thinking that the problem is solved when it's worse. There are types of treatment that you can put on skin cancers that appear to take care of the problem, but in fact, all they do is take care of the surface cancer, but it's growing deeper and it's more dangerous. And I'm not interested in an apparent surface cure. The ax, John the Baptist said, must be laid to the root of the tree. We want the roots gone. If we confess, he will forgive and he will what? cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God was given. He came. The whole purpose of Jesus' life was to take away our sins. And if our sins remain in us, you know what it means? That Jesus' work for us has not been successful. Oh, Lord, I want your work for your purpose for coming to this world to be successful in my life. I want that sin cleansed and gone, don't you? Are you happy with the harvest you're reaping now? Are you habit, happy with your habits of life? Seeds, that is, our thoughts or our actions, are, the, are what we sow, but what we reap are habits that bind us. I am glad for good habits. Those strengthen me. I am sorry for wrong habits because they make me in bondage. If you're unhappy with your habits, this is the time to pull them up and plant new seeds. What harvest of habits do you want to reap in 20 years? That's the seeds you must sow now. What kind of marriage do you want in 20 years? You must know the seeds that you're planting even as being single to know what you'll harvest. What words are you saying? Are they kind or are they critical? Are they doubt-producing or are they faith-building? Are they sour? Are they complaining and murmuring? Psalm 19:14. say it with me, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. If you want a happy marriage, carefully 
evaluate the seeds being planted. Now let's examine a little more closely how these principles apply to courtship in marriage. How do we use these Bible truths to help us with courtship and marriage? How do we utilize the seed sowing, re-sowing, first sowing, and early first fruit principle to have a happy marriage? What the Bible says, research confirms. The head researcher for the Pear Project, which was a prospective study of 168 couples, confirms what experience would suggest. And that is a woman who senses future problems while they're courting generally find out after the marriage that her concern was well-founded. That first fruit, the precocious fruit principle. Couples who are particularly physical while dating are far more likely to have a divorce. Anxiety, moodiness, and emotional swings in the wife or a husband do not preordain divorce, but they are absolutely predictive of unhappiness in marriage. Now, we won't have time to look at the 10 um, ingredients of happiness. That's another lecture. Uh, you can find it on Audioverse. Um, just, uh, just gave it at Dallas. Won't have time to do it here. But whether a marriage will be happy or unhappy is perfectly predictable by um, what we do or don't do. Ellen White says in the very first few months, they are married because passion moved them. And when the novelty of the affair is over, they will begin to realize what they have done. Doesn't take very long. The uh, research says within the first two years. Ellen White says within six months. In six months after the vows are spoken, their sentiments toward each other have undergone a change. Each has learned in married life more of the character of the companion chosen. Each discovers imperfections that during the blindness and folly of their former association were not apparent. Should have been, well, they just weren't apparent. That many eyes principle of last time. They were apparent to some, but not to the uh, willful. The promises at the altar do not bind them together. In consequence of hasty marriages, even among the professed people of God, there are, read this with me, separations, divorces, and great confusion in the church. Have you seen great confusion because of these things? You wonder why people rationalize huge mistakes. Have you under, wondered how some marriages could have ever happened? Take Cain, for example. What would go through a girl's mind that would lead her to marry a Cain? He was violent with those who disagreed with him. He was a murderer. He was a liar. Lied to God, would he tell the truth to his wife? Wouldn't a girl be, a friend of him, be afraid of him? Would she feel safe with him? Perhaps his sister felt sorry for him and thought she could change him. That's a common trap. Maybe his sister sympathized with him. She might not have gotten along with Abel herself. She might have found Cain less boring than Abel, more adventuresome, more exciting. 
Maybe she agreed with his philosophy of religion. Experimental, contemporary, less traditional, less cruel. Fruit, not blood. Or perhaps the sister was afraid she wouldn't get married. There didn't seem to be much to choose from. Abel was dead. Cain was the only game in town. There are tons of rationalizations to choose from to justify a poor choice in a life's partner. What advice would you have given her while she was dating? Would she have listened to your advice anyway? What if she loved him? Would that change your advice? Would you have even bothered to give advice? What chance would she listen? During courtship, we need to have good judgment, seed sowing and harvest principle. First sowing, these can help us have good judgment. During courtship, you are in a certain respect a judge, a judge who must make a ruling as to whether this person is the right person for you for life. The Bible gives very specific instruction for judges. Deuteronomy 13, 14, you must investigate thoroughly, inquire carefully. There are hard questions that must be asked. There's an investigation that must be performed to determine future harmony and happiness. Do you want a peaceful, happy union? Then this is a skill you must master. You must know how to inquire carefully and investigate fully. That means you, know, you need to know what questions to ask, when to ask the question, how to ask the question, uh, when to be direct, when to be indirect, who to ask, how to recognize the marks of a deceitful answer, a partial answer, a superficial answer. And these questions must be asked before you give the person your heart. You see, a thoughtful, knowledgeable Christian will not be just casually dating for entertainment to keep from being lonely and hope that he or she will somehow find a compatible person. There is a thoughtful purpose for courtship. Careful inquiry must precede any steps toward marriage. The inquiry phase must precede any acceptance of tokens of either specialness or exclusiveness. The steps of inquiry takes more than a moment, a single date, or a weekend. However long it takes, if we want a happy marriage, we will make certain of the answers before moving on to the next steps in courtship. But if we are absolutely committed to God, He'll protect us from great blunders. In the light of the first sowing principle, there's an area that must be investigated. You must become acquainted with the family, particularly the mother's character. The thoughts and feelings of the mother will have a powerful influence upon the legacy she gives her child. And we've run out of time. There is a lot more. I think we're supposed to stop at a quarter of six. Is that right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot more questions that need to be answered, but uh, um, study it out carefully. And you will learn these, uh, these questions. Um, we have in the uh, syllabus, there are, three, there are five questions that every fellow needs to ask about a potential life's partner. There are 18 questions that every girl must ask a potential life's partner. These are from the Spirit of Prophecy, questions that Ellen White says that need to be asked. And 
study them very, very carefully, um, these, uh, these questions, and um, learn how to ask and how to uh, find the answers. Let me just skip down to the, uh, the uh, end here. Well, I, I really just have to stop. There's no real good stopping. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for the truths of your word. I pray that you will bless this group of young people here. Those who are married, I pray that you'll give them insight as to how to guide their uh, children in wise uh, courtship and marriage, how to uh, raise a godly family, those who are contemplating marriage, or those who are actually not even yet contemplating marriage, but preparing uh, for future life. I pray that you will impress on them the importance of what your word has said about every action and the reaction and the consequences in our future. And Lord, we want you to guide us in every step of life. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the possibility of change and, and the warnings of the power of habit, but the promises of your greater power to change even our characters. We commit our lives to you. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.